Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday, the 1st of June, 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brandon. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. I'm really looking forward to hear our June sky guide. Go for it. Tell us, what's up in the sky for the month of June? Well, I'm really looking forward to talk about this because the month of June sees, once again, lots of planetary action in the morning skies. This month, we've got five bright planets in the morning skies and one almost bright planet. If you're very keen-eyed, you might be able to see Uranus if you're an unaided eye. And if you're in the dark sky, side, of course. And also Saturn turns up in the evening sky. As always, I'll go into the overview for the moon. So we're going to start with the moon. The month starts off with the moon being mostly dark. By June 8th, we have the first quarter moon. By June 14th, we have the full moon. And then on June 21st, we have the last quarter moon. And then on June the 19th is the new moon again. Apogee, uh, when the moon's furthest from the Earth, is on June the 2nd. And perigee, when the moon is closest to the Earth, is on June the 15th. The, the full moon and the, uh, perigee are quite close together. So we have a perigee syzygy uh, full moon this month, although next month is better. And if you've been looking out at uh, the apogee moons and remember from last year, you could probably be able to see the difference between these perigees, full moon, and the last apogee full moon. Very good. But let's on move on to the evening sky. Until now, the evening sky has been uh, devoid of bright planets. If you don't count Mercury sculpting along the horizon in the deep in the twilight. But now Saturn is entering the evening sky. It's rising around about 11 o'clock but that's just it's rising and it doesn't really get particularly high 
until the morning. And for the rest of the month, it remains best in the morning skies. For the third week of the month, Saturn will now be sufficiently high in the sky to clear a cluttered horizon. Uh, of course, if you live in the desert or uh, next to the ocean, it's not a problem. But for most of us, we've got things on our horizon. So by around about 11 o'clock from the third week, Saturn will be sufficiently high that you can see it easily, but not high enough for good telescopic observation. Yep. However, despite this, Saturn forms a shallow triangle with the two bright stars from the constellation of Capricorn, Delta and Gamma Capricornii. So you'll be able to easily identify the triple object above your eastern horizon around about 11 o'clock, the top two whitish stars, and then the brighter yellow object below those two stars is Saturn. And that will look very attractive. Cool. Okay. Now... On the 19th, the waning moon is close to Saturn. It's not going to be spectacular close, but again, the sight of the two planets and Saturn forming this triangle with the moon nearby will look very beautiful. So that's the evening sky. Let's turn to the morning sky. So Mercury returns to the morning sky. It's low to the horizon and, and a bit dim until after the first week. But from the first week, from about an hour before sunrise, you can readily see it rising towards the sinking Venus. It's at its greatest distance above the horizon on the 17th, and then it starts to sink back to the horizon. On the 22nd of June, it forms the second eye for Taurus the bull, with Venus close by. And on the 27th, the thin crescent moon forms a spectacular rectangle with Mercury, Venus and Aldebaran. Now, of course, they're not going to be close together, but just the sight of this arrangement in the morning will be quite lovely. And this is, this is a, you can see this from about an hour before sunrise. Obviously, as uh, it gets closer to civil twilight, the sky gets lighter and you'll be able to see less detail, but you should, should be able to see this pattern well into uh, towards civil twilight. Fantastic. Uh, it will be. I'm really looking forward to this one. Now, Venus, of course, is still dominating the morning sky. It's the brightest object in the morning sky. It starts the month below the pair of Mars and Jupiter, and it starts sinking towards horizon, towards Mercury and Uranus. Now, Uranus, as I said, is theoretically visible to the unaided eye, but you have to have a keen eye, good eyesight, and have a good idea of where Uranus is because it's right on the threshold of uh, unaided eye visibility. Still, it is, uh, at the moment, it is uh, unaided eye visible. Again, if you've got really, really, really good eyesight. So it's well worth having a look. And on the 11th to 12th, Venus and Uranus are within two degrees of each other. Now, to the unaided eye, uh, even though they're quite close, the bright Venus is going to wipe out any hope you would have of seeing Uranus even if you're in the dark sky site. But in binoculars, both Venus and Uranus will be readily visible and in also wide field eyepieces. Again, when we were looking before at the close acquisitions of the bright planets in Neptune, even though Neptune was a bit difficult to see, it's quite dim around about magnitude eight, whereas Uranus is just on magnitude six. 
So it's going to be a lot easier to see and will potentially uh, be a nice tiny disc in um, telescope eyepieces. So another nice thing to see in the morning. So after its encounter with uh, Uranus, uh, Venus continues to head towards Mercury and Taurus, the high 80s cluster, the Pleiades cluster. And on the 26th, Venus and the thin crescent moon are close. Venus is between uh, the Pleiades and Aldebaran. So this lineup of Venus and the thin crescent moon with the Pleiades cluster next by, the Hyades cluster and Aldebaran next nearby, and Mercury down below will make some really nice sight in the morning. And then, of course, as I said, on the 27th, the next night, you have the crescent moon and Mercury uh, not far away, forming this rectangle with uh, Venus and uh, Aldebaran. So for two nights, you've got a, a really nice lineup of two bright planets and a bright star and some interesting clusters. So that will make it really nice in the morning. Fantastic. The Earth is at solstice for the daylight hour of the short, shortest on the 21st. So after this, the days will begin to get longer and we'll have, uh, this is good because we'll have starting to get uh, nicer days, but the night time will begin to shrink. Yep. Okay, let's go back to Mars and Jupiter. Remember, Mars and Jupiter were spectacularly close on the 30th. On the 1st, the pair are one and a half degrees apart, which is a little over a finger width apart, which is quite nicely close together and look very nice. Uh, and after this, Jupiter begins to climb away from Mars. This marks the end of close bright planet encounters for a while. So Mars is drifting lonely at the moment. And on June the 23rd, it's less than a degree from the crescent moon, which will make it a quite nice viewing. Jupiter, on the other hand, is continuing to climb higher in the morning sky. And now it's an excellent telescopic object if you can get up early. So there'll be, uh, there's a long period when it's sufficiently high above the horizon to observe telescopically and a decent amount of time before twilight gets too bright to see any detail. So there's lots of early morning happy hunting for um, Jupiter and some nice uh, Jupiter uh, satellite events. Uh, we'll get a bit better uh, later on in the year as we get closer to opposition. But for the moment, it's still worthwhile get, if you're feeling up for getting up early and hunting out Jupiter with your telescope. On the 22nd, the Jupiter is close to the waning moon and forms a narrow triangle with Mars. So that looks really nice too. So 22nd and 23rd are two good times where you're going to see a nicer lineup of bright planets and the moon as well. Not quite as, uh, quite as uh, amazing as the Venus Mercury Pleiades lineup, but still very nice indeed and worthwhile getting up early in the morning to see. Excellent. Some good highlights for the month of June, Ian. Now, just before I go and ask you about your controversial tangent, yeah. um, I was wondering about Neptune. How good a telescope do you have to have to see the colours in the gas giants? 
you can do quite well with even a small telescope. So talking about reflectors, which is the ones I have the most experience with, a four and a half inch reflector will pick up the colours of the gas giants. I'll be subtle. You, it won't be really uh, as amazing as the colours you see with the Hubble images or with the spacecraft. But for Neptune, if you've got a, a high-powered telescope eyepiece for your four and a half or for your six or for your eight-inch reflector, you'll be able to pick up the colour. It won't be intense, uh, but you'll be able to see that it is coloured. And same with Uranus, you'll be able to... You're right, Uranus isn't as, uh, as quite as blue as Neptune, so it's, 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 you'll see it more sort of a, a ghostly grey and with the unaided eye, uh, because, of course, uh, your colour color sight isn't all that crash hot when you're looking at small objects with small angular diameters. Whereas, of course, for Jupiter and Saturn, uh, even in a four and a half inch telescope, a four and a half inch reflector telescope, the colours are quite obvious. Uh, they're very easy to pick up. Uranus, not so striking, but even with small telescopes, you should see that faint sheen of blue for Neptune. Fantastic. Well, get out there and look up. And Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this month? I do indeed have a tangent for you. And it's somewhat brought on by this month's Perigee Syzygy Moon. And also, uh, we've had a long string of, of tangents about naming of names, and this tangent will also have naming of names. Yep. So uh, those of you who have been on the intertubes will notice that Neil deGrasse Tyson got a lot of stick for tweeting, lunar eclipses are so unspectacular that if nobody told you what was happening to the moon, you'd probably not notice at all. Uh, uh, people got really upset by this, and there's a lot of criticism along the lines of just let people enjoy things. But I'm going to say, controversially, that he's mostly right. Yep. Now, bear with me. Yep. With a solar eclipse, the sky goes dark, like dusk. It's really disconcerting. Birds break out into confused twilight songs and fall silent again. And if you look up, the sun's being replaced by a pale ring of fairy fire. It's, that, that is spectacular. Yep. But with a lunar eclipse, uh, we in the Western and urban worlds live lives that are so disconnected from the sky, we can't recognise the key elements in it. Uh, I've told this story before, and I'll tell it again, that in 2008, police from Wales were called out for a bright, hovering UFO. Uh, when the police arrived on the scene, the offer tersely reported, it's the moon, over. Uh, and this would not be the last time police would be called out to respond to people not recognising the moon. So if people can't even recognise the moon under normal circumstances, are they going to notice a lunar eclipse? Now, I love lunar eclipses. I love the annular ones with the subtle shadows, partial, total, but as I said, unlike solar eclipses, these are subtle. Sure, the sky darkens and more stars come about, and that's really beautiful. But out of sight of rural or dark sky sites, the light pollution will really confound seeing this important part of a lunar eclipse. And without obvious cue to look up and to see the shadow encroaching on the moon, aside from us astronomy tragics, who's going to look up? Well, my kids for one, but then... 
my son, evil overlord, Yay, wandered up to, to me asking, Dad, is there something going on with the moon? It was a partial eclipse, and I was inside sorting out camera batteries at the time. So I took him out and pointed out there was a partial eclipse. And finally, in a total eclipse, if you look up at the right time, you're going to see a dark red or orange coin in the sky. Beautiful, ominous if you were so inclined, but spectacular. Is it really spectacular? It's certainly uh, beautiful. I love it. But given our disconnect from the sky, a casual person wandering out in the urban area would most likely not notice this at all. So we need uh, to be warned to have signposts for those of us who are not sky literate. And this is where it gets to the annoying part that where I uh, largely agree with the curmudgeon and Neil and myself. So the most recent eclipse was touted as the super flower blood moon eclipse. So you can understand why Neil uh, got snarky and that sets my teeth on edge. Yep. Sisgy perigee total lunar eclipse may not roll off the tongue as nicely. But we can do better than that frothy doom implying concoction, do you not think? So let's start with the super part. It was a syzygy perigee moon, where the moon is full near perigee, the moon's closer to approach, and it's bigger, it's a little bit bigger. And people with good eyesight and a good memory for apogee moons will see it as a bit bigger. But your average person on the Bondi tram looking up will see nothing different, it'll just look like a moon. And they're bound to be disappointed. They're promised a super moon, and it's just the moon. So they're going to be disappointed. This is a science outreach failure. And let's be clearly set out these expectations, like with the meteor showers, the disappointments every, every time we, talk, we get excited about a meteor shower, people go up and see a, a dozen meteors and, oh, that's fantastic for us. But for them, it's going, what's going on? Why is this important? So again, this month, is also a Sisgy perigee moon, and it's a bit better than the, the super flower blood moon eclipse. And the next one's even better. But again, most people will not really see this, the subtle differences between the moons, unless they've been really looking carefully at the moon. Just a casual person wandering out will be very rarely be able to see the difference, let alone see it as a super difference. Uh, parenthetically, supermoon does not occur, occur in internet posts or in literature before 2011. Before then, we'd just call them supermoons or even pay very much attention to them. It corresponds with astrologer Richard Nolly coining the term and claiming that the March 19, 2011 supermoon would cause earthquakes and diverse other problems due to a cosmic shock window. Wow. It didn't, of course. Uh, but every after that, every year, like clockwork, there are articles calling the nearest perigee Sisgy moon a supermoon. Nearest in the sense of being, being the, the pair closest together. Uh, quite often, there are three uh, months where perigee and full moon are sufficiently close to be called a uh, perigee Sisgy moon. But there's only one where they're really close together. Okay. So where we're using. Supermoon, it's an outreach method to get people engaged with these, with these beautiful sky events uh, based on an astrologer's uh, penchant for calling out uh, doom and destruction in a metaphysical sense, a geocosmic shock window. But, okay, so that's why I'm really annoyed by the supermoon. 
Uh, and then blood moon. Similarly, blood, you think blood moon, oh, that's an ancient term that we use for, for um, total lunar eclipses. No, it's actually not. It's uh, attention grabbing, it's ominous, it's scary. And it wasn't really used much before May 2014. I, I did a couple of, about four times between 2004 and 2014 it was used. But for some reason in May 2014, Suddenly, everyone's talking about the blood moon. It was used 48 times in May 2014. Uh, and, and every total eclipse since then has multiple mentions. Strange enough, it seems to have fallen off recently with the May super flow of blood moon eclipse having the fewest mentions of blood or super in it. So it's attention grabbing. It's, we're trying to get people to look up in the sky, but you know, the moon goes up this beautiful deep copper or depending on the, on air pollution and ash and colour, but it's nothing like the colour of the blood. And it's, you know, again, people are going to be looking up expecting a spectacular ominous moon and they're going to be disappointed. It's going to, they, they're expecting something really out of the ordinary and what they'll see will be beautiful. But will they appreciate that beauty because they were expecting something super blood ominous? This is where, again, I see that as another science outreach failure where you're using this really attention-grabbing language for something that is subtle, undoubtedly, undeniably beautiful and wonderful, but subtle, not spectacular. And I think this is, again, this is what uh, Neil was talking about rather than the fact that it, you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful event, but it's not this, this amazing, super ominous blood moon. Mars is the least objectionable. Many societies have named the moons. For example, harvest moon is very common in agricultural societies. Um, but it is very US-centric. And that gets my goat a bit. The US does get extra points for including some indigenous Amer uh, American names in the moon name list, mixed in with some uh, uh, traditional uh, English uh, moon names. But when you're using this for worldwide outreach, it'd be nice to use local moon names if they have them. Not everybody has a specific name for each moon. So, for example, in South Africa, it's uh, the May moon, it's called the Bell moon. It's the Dragon moon in China. If you're uh, 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 Choctaw, it's uh, a Panther moon. And the Dakota soon calls it the moon when leaves are green, which is a bit of a mouthful. And, you know, it doesn't make a, a, a really good grabbing head, headline. A super moon when the leaves are green, a blood moon eclipses, it doesn't have the same thing. Uh, in New Guinea, it's a flying fish moon, possibly. Uh, we're not too clear if that's still being used. Which uh, New Guinea is like Australia, where it's, we've got lots of language groups where various groups may have different names for moons and various groups may not name moons at all. In Sri Lanka, the, the uh, May full moon is Visak Poya. Sri Lanka has a special name for each full moon. And Visak Poya is the month in which Buddha's birth is celebrated. So it'd be nice to have a bit of uh, more worldwide titles. So the uh, super dragon uh, blood moon would be, yeah, that's, that's a bit more attention grabbing. 
Interestingly, I haven't been able to find uh, any moon, month moon names for Indigenous Australians or for uh, the uh, Maori cultures. Uh, they don't seem to have had to have gone into that sort of detail. Ah, I'm hoping to catch up with Crystal DiNapoli soon to get her book signed. Um, I'll ask her about that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good idea. So just, just to finish off, a, a total lunar eclipse, whether it's a syzygee, perigee eclipse or not, it, it's a beautiful and subtle sight. I love them the bits. The deepening shadow crawling over the face of the moon, the slow brightening of stars. Again, if you're not overwhelmed by light pollution. And, and it, I, I believe it's very important to call attention to this, to this beauty and to make people sky literate so they will look up and understand what they've seen. But calling a, a super blood moon eclipse is setting up for a science communication failure where the spectacle that people are primed for doesn't eventuate. And, and we can do better. We can do better to get people, getting people to look up and see the beauty that is there. Fair enough, Ian. I've always been a believer that you under-promise and over-deliver rather than the opposite. Uh, exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, thank you very much once again, Ian Astroblock Musgrave. Thank you for opening our eyes to what we can see up in the sky in the month of June. And we'll see, be seeing the moon in June. It will be a super moon in June. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Okay, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to share the sky with you yet again, especially since there's lots of interesting things going on up there. We'll be back next month for another exciting month of sky events. Thanks very much, Ian. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. We'll catch you later, and uh, you have a good morning. And hopefully, the uh, the winter rains will fill your fill your lagoons and dams, and the and the animals will rejoice. Exactly. Thanks, Ian. Look up and have fun. You too, mate. You too. And remember, Astrophys is free ad-free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. We'll see you in two weeks when we speak with Floor Brookgarten, an amazing gravitational wave astronomer up in the Netherlands. Radio Wave!